Welcome to the Knox Podcast, featuring a sermon from the Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Kenmore, New York. For more information about Knox Church, visit our website at knoxepc.com or email us at office at knoxepc.com. To request prayer, send an email to pastor at knoxepc.com. Will you open your Bibles with me to James chapter 4? This morning we're going to read James chapter 4. It's located on page 1173, verses 1 through 6. Let's rise as we receive God's Word this morning. James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says without reason that He jealously longs for the Spirit He caused to dwell in us? But He gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Let's receive this word as we look into it this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this continued message from James. We thank you for your holy word that we have this immense privilege of being able to read it, to interpret it, to learn from it, and apply it to our lives. I just pray that we'll all come away this morning growing more in our faith in you. In your name, amen. Please have a seat. I'm a very frugal person, so when I take my kids out, nine times out of ten, we go to playgrounds. Nice and cheap and fun. And when we're at at playgrounds, I usually observe what my kids are doing. And I always find it really fascinating, especially little kids, can just run up to each other. They've never met each other before in their lives, and they can run up to each other and say, hey, you want to be my friend? And it's that easy. Like, they're, yeah, let's be friends. And instantly, they're going off together. They're having fun. It's really easy. I remember once standing next to a dad uh, of the little girl that Casey went up to. And Casey's like, you want to be my friend? And she's like, yeah, let's be friends. And I turned to the dad and went, why can't it be that easy for adults? Why can't we just run up to somebody and say, hey, you want to be friends? And he said, well, that gets really awkward fast. And I said, I know. But wouldn't that be nice? But of course, I'm also kind of, I, I was thinking more about how easy it was to make friends as kids, but also it was easy to make the wrong kind of friends. And sometimes that happened. You, you latched on to somebody you thought were cool or they were just giving you attention, but we didn't always have the good, best of judgment for when we chose friends as kids. And when we chose a particularly bad kid to be a friend, now we're talking like a bully or a kid that was always using bad language, 
or a kid that was always trying to get us to do sinful things, usually our parents would step in. Hopefully, if they were good parents, they'd step in and they correct us and they say, you know what, that person's not really a good friend to you. you. You having fun with them, but they're not as good to you as you think they are. Let me explain why. And let's try to get you to trade that friendship, that bad friendship that's not helping your life. Let's trade that up for some good friendships that we'll look for. I know my parents did that on a few occasions, saying, let's, let's find a better friend for your life. Well, as we turn the corner into James chapter 4 this week, the author is doing pretty much the same thing. He's coming out to us, and he's bluntly telling us the friendship that we have had for so very long in our life is not only bad for us, it's absolutely toxic. And we are much better off for trading up for a friendship with Christ. Well, remember that James, he's not speaking to everybody in a general sense. He's primarily speaking to Christians. This is who he's written this letter to. So not just non-believers that are receiving this, it's primarily Christians. And so his audience is a crowd of people who have already received Christ in their heart. And yet he's seen as a pastor, as an apostle, he's gone around and he's seen these people who have accepted Christ in their heart, still holding on to a friendship with the world. And they can't seem to let it go. They can't quite give it up. Kind of reminds me of my very first girlfriend. I think we broke up about 17 times. We couldn't quite let each other go, but we knew it just wasn't working out, but it was comfortable and it was familiar. And so you'd end up going back again and again. You would never learn that lesson until you finally just learned it's not the right relationship. And that's what James is reminding us of. He's like watching these Christians go toward God and then go back to the world. And then go toward God and then go back to the world. He says, you can't, guys, you've got to pick a lane. You've got to pick a friendship. Even as you choose Christ giving you new life, you're trying to retain your old life at the same time. And it doesn't work well. So James is doing what my parents did. He's sitting us down as Christians, as a body of Christ, and saying, let me explain to you why your old friendship is so bad for you. Why it is detrimental to your life. Why you need to, it's not just detrimental, it's so terrible, you need to drop it like it was a poisonous snake and run away from it. Yesterday I was setting up, our family was setting up Christmas decorations in our home. Who's done that yet? All right, we got a lot of slackers. Come on, decorate your house for Christmas. And I, I pull, we'd store everything in our garage. And even though it's sub-zero and there's snow coming down, I pulled out a wreath from my garage, and the biggest, hairiest spider just popped right out of it. And you can believe me that I dropped it, stepped away, made a little noise that was not very manly, and, and then that spider was no more. That's how James says we should treat this old friendship we've had. Drop it. Step away from it, stomp on it, and go the other way. Well, the first part of the explanation, so we go into James 4, and he's giving us a reason. He's not just giving us that mom and dad answer of, because I said so. He's saying, let me tell you why. I love that about the Bible. They want to tell us why we should do the things that we're commanded to do. And the first part of this explanation he gives is he says that friendship with the world rots our relationships. 
Always remember, never forget that what sin does is it takes the good things that God has created and it corrupts them and makes them horrible. It takes your awesome friendships and it rots them to the core. He says you don't want to hold on to your friendship with the world because it hurts your other friends, hurts your family, hurts your co-workers. James writes, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Look at this, this image, it's not two people working together in unity and in harmony. It's two people locked together in a room, both wanting the same thing and both being willing to bash each other's heads in to get it. It's like that's what the world, that friendship, drives you toward. When I was reading this passage, it immediately reminded me of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And I know even if you have a passing familiarity, you know the creature Gollum, right? Gollum, Gollum, right? He's my precious. He's got to have his ring. Well, in this story, J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a Christian, he wove a lot of Christian themes into his books, He told us the tale of Gollum, how he used to be a river hobbit named Smeagol. And Smeagol had that self-centered ambition that James was warning us against. That Smeagol was out for Smeagol. He wanted what he wanted. And one day it was his birthday, and he was down at a river with his friend Diego. And Diego was splashing around in the water, and he finds at the bottom of the riverbed a ring. And he brings it up, and he admires the ring. And Smeagol sees it, He says, it's my birthday. I want it. Give it to me. Deagle says, no. It's my ring. I found it. But Smeagol, his self-centered ambition, his envy, his covetedness was so great that he strangles his friend and he murders him to get that one thing. And for the rest of the books, we see this newfound creature called Gollum chasing that one item that is the most poisonous thing in the world to him. That he doesn't even realize what kind of control it has over his life. He just wants it more than anything else. Well, for us reading those books, we might look at Smeagol, we might look at that story and we say, how foolish was he? But James says, we're just like that. In our relationship, we have this internal war that is very much the same. He says, your desires battle within you. And at that point, I think most of us are nodding because we immediately understand that. We have a desire to please God, but we also have a desire to please ourselves. And those two things are often in conflict because pleasing ourselves is usually going down the path of sin. And so we struggle with that. And what we usually do is we find ourselves wearing ourselves out because we're trying to do both at the same time. We're what my mom called burning your candle at both ends. We're trying to satisfy ourselves, but we're also trying to satisfy Christ. And the more we do both of that, the more we get tired. And we're just like, why am I so unsatisfied? Because you're trying to have it all. And all isn't really that good for you. Because the more you stay friends with the world, the more it's destroying the relationships that you hold most dear. So if you cherish those relationships, if you're sitting right next to somebody this morning or you had Thanksgiving with some people that you genuinely cherish, don't hold on to your friendship with the world because all that friendship's going to do is tell you, be out for yourself. Be out for number one. You don't need these people. You need to care about yourself first and foremost. It rots your relationships. 
But beyond damaging our relationships with other people, James goes on and he says it also holds us back from our relationship with God, namely our communication with God. Look at verses 2 and 3. James writes, you do not have because you do not ask a God. Hold on to that phrase for just a minute. You do not have because you do not ask God. And then he goes on and says, well, when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. This is one of the most profound passages in terms of how we should pray that I've ever found in the Bible. Is that I could unpack this for a long time. But what I wanted to talk about is this movement that we've seen in some segments of the global church called Name It and Claim It Theology. Have you heard of this? It's been going around for a long time now. Name It and Claim It Theology says that God wants to give you everything you want. He's just waiting for you to one day be bold enough to pray a prayer that names what you want and claims it, basically demands that God gives you what you want. Be so bold in your prayer and your faith that God will go, wow, I'm really impressed. Here you go. And name it and claim it, theology is very concerned with, with claiming things like perfect health, vast wealth, and success at your job, and a life free of pain. Which, by the way, the Bible is very clear to us is not the Christian calling. But this movement, this name it and claim it theology, this movement has corrupted so many Christians' view of prayer that they demand God give them what they want. And when God doesn't, they, must, they think, well, then my faith isn't big enough. And it's, it's damaging their communication. If they only look at what James is saying here, that God is not giving them what they want because they're not asking the right way. They're asking a way that holds on to a friendship with the world. That's the problem. That's the core problem here. Because when it comes to us talking with God, if you're going to go to your friendship with the world and say, well, world, how should I talk to God? The world's going to shrug. And the best the world can come up with is saying, you need to treat the world like you treat anybody else that you want something from. You need to be selfish about it. And you need to treat this God like he's a cosmic gift giver. That's the best the world can come up with. That's why James is saying when you're relying on that friendship, of course your communication with God is going to really suffer. Of course you're not going to get the responses you would like. But that isn't to say you should never bring your requests and your desires to God. Because the Bible also tells us you need to do that. You should do that. God invites you to do that. This is the blessing that our Heavenly Father gives to us. He says, come to me. Pray to me. Bring what you want to me. I think a lot of us Christians hold back because we're a little too worried. We are being selfish. If I ever, you know, I'm okay praying for other people, but do you pray for yourself? Do you pray for things that you want in your life that you feel like a need or there's just, you just talk to God and say, God, I, I have this need in my life. I'm feeling a void. Please fill it. Do you pray that or you just feel like it's, it's too uncomfortable, too selfish? Well, we can't learn how to talk to God from our friendship with the world. So we need to look somewhere else. Do you remember back when we used to have modems on our computers that would dial into the internet? 
cast your mind back, back in the day, and it made that horrible noise. That, that, oh, kids these days will never know the joy of that noise that was like nails on chalkboard for a good half minute. I, thought, I always thought when I was a younger kid and I heard the, the modem dial in that the computer was dying or something. But do you know why, why it made that noise? For those of you who can remember, it's because what the computers were doing is this electronic handshake that the one computer was dialing in, this other computer, they were talking to each other with these really large, harsh noises until they could get on the same page. And then suddenly, the computers could start easily talking back and forth. So that harsh noise was this electronic handshake to get on the same page. Well, we've established that friendship with the world won't get you on the same page when it comes to communicating with God. But as James points out, there is a type of prayer that is incredibly effective and will get you on the same page with God. What is that prayer? It says right here, it's a prayer that boldly asks God in His will. Don't ever forget that phrase. In His will. And then waits in submission to hear His answer. We pray boldly to God, boldly, humbly, in His will, and then we wait for His answer. We trust that God will say no to us when our request is selfish, when it does work against our lives, when that request maybe works against His purpose for the church, that God will say no to those things, and we need to be, God, please say no to me. Are you ever comfortable doing that in prayer? Lord, I'm going to ask for something, but please say no if it's the wrong thing. I'm going to ask it anyways, but please say no. But what James also hints at here is that God is going to say yes to an awful lot more than you'd ever suspect. And maybe it's just because you haven't prayed. Maybe it's because you're holding back. You're not trusting God in that prayer. James says, bring those prayers to God, but wait in submission for his answer. To pray well, we need to be on the same page with God. You need to have that handshake. And that's another reason why we have to trade up that bad friendship for a better one. There was a pastor I was reading, and he suggested that James is an awful name for this book. He said, I have a much better name for how this book is. He said, I want to call, rename this book, In Your Face. Because so we've been reading James. James is kind of a blunt guy. He is very aggressive, especially when he wants to get a point across. Look at verse 4. I don't think James is any more aggressive than he ever gets in verse 4 right here. He says, you adulterous People, remember he's talking to Christians. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Whew. Look at that language. Let it make you uncomfortable. Let you shift in your pews as we read this and we go, this is directed to us. You adulterous people. James is telling us, when you became part of the church, you joined to Christ in marriage. That's the closest possible relationship idea we have that God gives to us, how we've joined with Him. We've joined to Christ in marriage and now you are cheating on your perfect spouse with your former lover. 
You're breaking your vows. You've been saved by the blood of the Lamb, and the very next day, you've gone back to being God's enemy again. This is not a new phenomenon among God's people. We learn this all the time when we read the Old Testament. We see the Israelites, God's chosen people, set apart for Him, God dwelling in their midst. And what do they do again and again and again? They worship God at the temple, and then they go home where they have idols set up and shrines in their living room, and they pray to those gods as well. We are an adulterous people. And why would they do that? Well, they figured they'd get the benefit of both worlds. They would get the blessing from God, but they'd also get the blessing from what other gods would shower upon them at the same time. They were holding on to all of these friendships. Even as God told them in the Ten Commandments, you shall not bow down and worship them, for I, your God, am a jealous God. Our bridegroom is jealous for us in the best possible way. I was explaining this to my kids this week, that there was a good kind of jealousy. They said, no, there's not. I said, there absolutely is. A man can be jealous for his wife. A wife can be jealous for her husband. They, I said, you don't want to see, you don't want to see me going out and smooching other girls, right? Joy, would, which, what would mommy do? She'd hit me upside the head with a, with a rolling pin, right? And they're like, yeah, because husbands and wives are jealous for each other. We want that special relationship to just be us and them. That's how God wants to be with you. Just you and Him. He's so jealous for you. And then when you go, well, I want to be there with you, God. I want to have that relationship. But I also want my old friendship. I want my old lover. I want to go back. God says, no. You've got to trade it up. It's got to be one or the other. And when we give in to that habitual sin, in our lives that we all know is there and we go back to again and again and again. When we pursue the idols in our life that we hold above God, God's important, but there are some other things that are a little more important in our lives. James says it's time to clean our house. Time to get those idols out of the living room. Time to devote ourselves to the only relationship that matters. Well, if, you've, if you're wondering right now, have I made progress in trading up? Because it's not an overnight thing. It doesn't happen all of a sudden. Then ask yourself this. Look back at November 2020 and look back over the last 12 months. Have you improved in your relationship with God and, and grown in that relationship while de-emphasizing your relationship with the world? Who do you derive the most pleasure from in your life? Is it things of God or the things of the world? And what would God say if you asked him those same questions? Well, even as we anger God, I rejoice that he does not give up on encouraging us to return to him. Isaiah 54 says, The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. There's that marital language again. When we come to the point when we finally get, God, I'm so disgusted by this friendship I've had with the world my entire life. And even as a Christian, I'm still kind of holding on to it. I'm disgusted with that. When we humble ourselves before God, we say, God, I need you to help me make this transition 
I need you to help me to trade it up. Then God is ready to aid us in cutting those ties. God's good jealousness for us, as James says, results in more and more grace. I love this. I love that in the, in the one breath he's, he's accusing us of being adulterous, but in the next breath he says, but God gives you more grace, and you can overcome even this. The language here that James uses is a never-ending torrent of grace that has been flowing down on your life ever since you chose Christ as your Savior. It has not stopped. It will never stop. It will come and come and come upon you more than enough to meet your needs. I think a lot of Christians, and I've heard this a lot, that we assume that there will be a point that we can tap out how much grace God has, that we will finally get to the end of God's patience. We'll say, well, I've been dealing with you and your problems and your issues for way too long. I'm, I'm empty. I'm exhausted. I've got no more tough luck kid. We kind of assume that, and we get worried about that. Because the older we get, our problems keep coming. We keep needing more grace. We wonder, is it going to dry up? Will that well ever dry up? I think that's as ridiculous as going to Niagara Falls when you're thirsty and putting your cup out there and drinking and drinking and, and just getting worried that you might drink the whole waterfall. If you've been out there, if you've seen the power of that waterfall, you've seen the raging rapids that flow right into it, it's ridiculous to suggest you could not only drink it all up, but then be worried there would be no more water to come down. It'll never stop. And that's how God's grace is. It will never stop. And in fact, it's not just that it will never stop. It will be more than enough to meet your tiny little needs in this scope of God. Romans 5.20 says that where sin increased, His grace was even more. You sin more in your life. You stumble in your sin. You fall back on that former friendship. Guess what? God's not just tutting His head and shaking His head at you and go, well, look, you, you did it now. He says, now it's my turn. I'm going to give you more grace. I'm going to give you more forgiveness. I'm going to pick you up. You are not a lost cause because God won't let you lose. And that is the, the triumph of Scripture. But we need to understand that these two friendships we've had in our life, they are not compatible. They are diametrically opposed. They are two different paths. And the more you try to hold on to both, the slower your progress is in growing as a Christian. Not that you can't progress, but it will slow you down. We need to let the one go to go faster in this direction. Paul, the Apostle Paul, clarifies this for us in Titus 3. I want to read this passage to you because I think he does a great job in being parallel to what James is saying here. Paul says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. James is nodding his head. Yep. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but by His mercy. He saved us by the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus 
our Savior, so that by having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having hope of the eternal life. It's time we take an honest look at the friendship we have in our lives and how we need to let go of one to pursue the other. Let James wake us up this, this week. Let's really be aware of that hold that friendship has, that old friendship has, and that there's no need to keep holding on to it any longer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this rebuke and this encouragement here in James 4. There's not one of us, myself included, Lord, that hasn't tried to hold on to the pleasures of our old ways, look to, to please ourselves above you. And Lord, I want it to be done. I pray that we would be just more and more aware this week that you would open the eyes of our heart to how these old philosophies, these old trends of the world keep calling out to us and how tempting it is to go back to that friendship. But Lord, help us by the reading of the Word, by the Spirit stirring in our souls, that we may desire you more and more. And Lord, we know that we need your help in this. We need you to, to create that increase, but we are willing to work for it as well. Lord, I pray this upon this congregation, that we would cherish our friendship with you. And Lord, we would be faithful to you. Faithful as a bride is to her bridegroom. And all God's people said, Amen. To reach out to Pastor Justin, email him at pastor at knoxepc.com. Our mailing address is Knox Church, 2595 Elmwood Avenue, Kenmore, New York, 14217. Join us for worship Sundays at 1030 a.m. either at Knox Church or on our live stream at facebook.com forward slash knoxepc. Past sermons can be found at knoxepc.com forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.